It was just over eight years ago, on June 26, 2015. My wife and I moved into a new house, our current house, for any of you that have been there. And many people joined us from church. We were very grateful for that uh, experience and for that help. We were just getting the last box carried into our house. And I still remember it. It's still a fairly vivid memory. Uh, my wife was sitting on the, just on the front porch, just on the front, the front stoop, the front steps of our house. And literally the last box had been carried in from the moving truck. And Tabitha said, I don't remember the exact words, but it was along the lines of, um, Peter? Um, now, you need to understand something about the context here. Tabitha was pregnant. She was very pregnant. She was about nine months pregnant. And as we were carrying in the last box into the house, Tabitha was informing me, Peter, I'm feeling something right now. And this was our second child. We had already gone through labor and delivery once before. And so I had a pretty good idea that Tabitha knew what she was talking about when she said, "Uh Uh-oh, I'm feeling something. And I hustled my little rear end to take that moving truck back, dropped it off, got back just in time to whisk Tabitha to the hospital, to the delivery center, where literally only, what, you can ask Tabitha for confirmation, a couple hours later, Kate Elizabeth Magnuson entered the world. It was pretty touch and go. And Tabitha was experiencing in that moment labor. Now, it's funny, it makes it very easy for me to remember when we moved into our house. How long have you been living here? Well, actually, I'll tell you when we moved in. It was the birthday of my second child. In fact, I like to say that we moved into our house the same day we had our second child, and I'll just leave it to you to determine whether those two things were related. You decide whether that actually sent Tabitha directly into labor. I I suspect it may have had something to do with it. Now, I start here... Because the subject of labor pains, this will surprise you, but it's something I'm not an expert on. I, I, I have no expertise in the subject of labor pains, but some of you are real experts. Some of you are very familiar with the topic of labor pains. It's wonderful to have Andrew and Jessica again here today. Jessica is now expert in labor pains, just having had the Narag's second child. And I start here because Jesus has something to say to us in Mark chapter 13 about labor pains. Now, we've been talking already. Last week, we just introduced this chapter that has been so challenging to Christians to Bible commentators, to preachers, to scholars, trying to understand what Jesus is talking about here. 
And we just began introducing this concept last week, but I'll introduce it again this morning like this. There are two dominant theories about what Jesus really means in Mark chapter 13. One theory says that Jesus, his words, were almost all, if not all, fulfilled already. This is called the preterist view. I'll just spell it out for you. P-R-E-T-E-R-I-S-T. Preterist. The preterist view. That preterist view believes that everything that Jesus said in Mark chapter 13, or nearly everything that he said, has already been fulfilled. It was fulfilled in the first century A.D. It was fulfilled when the Romans sacked Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And for some, they hold, well, the coming of Jesus is, is, of course, in the future. We're not there yet. But otherwise, virtually everything that we see in Mark 13 was past. Others, as you might expect, take a very different view. They take a futurist view. They say, no, everything in this chapter, or nearly everything in this chapter, is in the future. It hasn't arisen yet. We are looking ahead just like those disciples were looking ahead. They were looking ahead thousands of years in the future to determine when the vast majority, if not all, of these events will be taking place. And as I said last week, commentators and scholars and the preachers you listen to on the radio take wildly different views Either these two views or some hybrid between them. And it leaves the challenge for all of us. If we want to be students of the Bible, if we want to be people who dig in and rightly divide the the word of truth, as Paul tells Timothy to do, how are we to understand this chapter? Well, I want to suggest to you that there's something here, a picture that Jesus uses, that is going to help us begin sorting out the answer to this question. And this phrase is used in verse number 8. If you have your Bible this morning and you want to look at Mark chapter 13 and look with me at verse 8, Jesus says, For nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be earthquakes in diverse places or different places, and there shall be famines and troubles. Now look at this last phrase of verse 8. These are the beginnings of sorrows. Now stop right there. That word sorrows literally has the idea of pain, or what we might say in the labor context, pangs. This this is literally speaking of birth pangs, of labor pangs. Sorrows, the agony that a woman goes through, what you might say, the sorrow a woman goes through when she is entering into labor. Again, think of it like this. Jesus is saying, these things that I'm telling you, these earthquakes, these famines, these wars and rumors of wars, these are the beginning of labor pains. These are the beginning of sorrows. They say, well, what does that tell us about anything? 
I actually think when we dig into it this morning, is going to be very helpful, not only in giving us a practical roadmap for how we should be looking at the political and and geographic and and, and environmental uh, problems swirling around us today, but also for how we are going to understand this chapter moving forward. The title of the message today is Labor Pains and Last Days. Labor Pains and Last Days. And I want to look at this picture in the context of our text today. We'll likely only get through verse 8 and pick up next week beginning, God willing, in verse 9. What does this picture of labor pains have to do with Jesus' message to his disciples in the first century A.D. and to us today. I want to start, first of all, with what I'm going to call the priority. The priority. Because if you look with me in Mark chapter 13, the disciples have questions for Jesus. Now, again, let's remember where we were last week. The disciples have just exited the temple. The temple was a building that was a massive project for Herod, for King Herod. He was desirous to have this just enormous, beautiful spectacle of the ancient world, a place for the Jews to worship God. And it was glorious. You remember quoting last week Josephus, an ancient historian, who said that when you looked um, uh, uh, at, at the temple, it was plated with gold. And at the certain time of day, in the morning when the sun came up, it would radiate off that gold of the temple so bright that you'd almost have to shield your eyes like you were looking at the sun itself. It was just this ornate, beautiful uh, facility for the worship of Jehovah. And we talked about last week, these massive stones that were part of the retaining wall uh, uh, of the temple complex, and then the massive stones in the temple itself. Hundreds of tons in an ancient world. I mean, just is mind-boggling, the kind of construction work that was done. And so, like many people do when they see these glorious buildings, like we might do today when we see skyscrapers or other kinds of events, the disciples stop and they look at point to Jesus and say, Jesus, look at all these great buildings. Isn't this amazing? And notice what Jesus says in verse 2. Seest thou these great buildings? Do you see them? There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, Jesus is making a prediction there. He's making what we would call prophecy. He is predicting the future. What's he saying? This temple will be thrown to the ground. This this beautiful spectacle will be utterly cast down. Now, was Jesus right about that? Did he predict the future accurately? Yes or no? Yes, he did. We looked at that last week. Around AD 66... The Romans besieged the city of Jerusalem. They ultimately forced their way into the city. They ultimately knocked down the temple, literally leaving no stone atop another in the temple complex, in the main temple area. They utterly brutalized the population. Uh, Somewhere around a million Jews being killed, uh, Josephus estimated, the historian of that day. 
a, a remarkable devastation. And Jesus predicted that this temple would be utterly demolished about 40 years, uh, just shy of perhaps 40 years before it actually happened. And so now his disciples, as they go up onto the Mount of Olives, they leave the city, they've left the temple, you can just imagine the questions that are circulating through the disciples' minds. Okay, Jesus, you've predicted the future for us. Now what? Now tell us when. You and I would have been curious about the exact same question. Jesus, okay, you said that this entire, our world of this temple in Jerusalem that is at the center of our national and religious identity is going to be destroyed. So when is it going to happen? And that's exactly what they were worried about. Look at verse 3. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives over against the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled? Now, as I told you last week, Matthew records that they actually asked another question. What will be the sign of your coming? Because for them, the idea of a, of a temple and of the being destroyed and of these utter destruction on Jerusalem, if that was going to happen, then surely the end times must be here. Surely this is going to be the end. What is going to be the sign of your coming? Now, I just want to point out one thing. Do you know Christians are still asking the same questions today? Hey, Jesus, when are these things happening? What's going to be the sign that, that you're going to come? Remember, I talked about the two views. The preterist view. It's already happened. When? It's already happened. The futurist view. When? It's happening way in the future. And these two camps are arguing back and forth with each other, pointing to other scripture passages to say, when? Well, Jesus answered it. When? People are asking the exact same questions today. But what I want you to notice, first of all, by way of priority, is how Jesus responds. Notice the first words out of Jesus' mouth are not, All right, boys, you asked when these things will occur. Well, let me make sure that you know the precise, exact, chronological history. Now, Jesus is going to answer their question. But that's not the first thing out of his mouth. Will you notice the first thing out of his mouth? And Jesus answering them, verse 5, began to say, Take heed, lest any man deceive you. Wow. Then if you scroll down to verse number 9, he says, But take heed to yourselves. Now what does it mean to take heed? To take heed means watch out. Watch out. Like if you're going along a path and there's some kind of obstacle in your way, some kind of big step or bump, someone turns around and says, hey, watch out. Look out. There's there's a step here. There's a gap. Watch out. That's what's on Jesus' mind. Hey, Jesus, when are all these things going to happen? When's going to be the end of the, of the age? When is going to be your coming? And Jesus' first response to them is, Hey, boys, you better watch out. You better watch out so that you don't get deceived. Now, let me just park on that for just one moment. When someone says, watch out, so you don't get deceived, what is he assuming? 
What's he assuming? That you might be deceived. Right? You get the idea? Watch out so you don't get deceived. What is he assuming? If you don't watch out, you might get deceived. Okay? Very simple. Very straightforward. Now, let me just make this point very simply to all of us. Jesus was assuming that his disciples might get deceived. He was assuming that you might get deceived if you're not careful. Now, what kind of deception is is he speaking of? Will you notice? Take heed lest any man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Many people are going to get deceived in what he's speaking of here because they're going to come and say, hey, I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm the one that you've been looking for. Now, let me ask you this, friends. Has that happened throughout history? I'm the one you've been looking for? I'm the one you've been waiting for? You better believe it. Jim Jones, David Koresh, you all could name a number of other names of people who have said, I'm the one. In fact, tragically, this goes back to the truth that for so many of these who said, I'm the one, Jim Jones, David Koresh, other messianic figures throughout history, have brought the incredible devastation and destruction to their followers. Their entire follower base wiped out. In fact, you can even go back into the AD 100s to see um, a, a, a Jewish man who came and revolted against Roman rule at that time. And, and, and he was called the Son of the Star. That was what his name meant, Son of the Star. And a very prominent Jewish rabbi, Rabbi Akiva, identified him as the Messiah. He looked back to an Old Testament prophecy from Balaam saying, A star will rise. And he thought, This is the one, this is the one. And do you know, it led to utter destruction, devastation. I, saw, I heard an estimate that nearly about half a million Jews were killed in his revolt of a man claiming to be Christ, claiming to be Messiah. This is an absolute fact of all of history. People coming and saying, I am Christ and deceiving many. You know, friends, this is not just a, an ancient problem or a fringe problem. I think of even a man named Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, he wouldn't claim to be the Messiah per se, but he would claim, he did claim to be the prophet from Messiah, pointing people to the new revelation that God had given him. And it may be politically incorrect to say, but Joseph Smith was a charlatan. He was a fraud. The people who say today that Mormonism is the same as biblical Christianity, they are false. They are relying on the supposed revelation of a charlatan. In fact, Joseph Smith, it really is, I I major on this not to suggest that in any way we should be unkind to those who are Mormons. No, the exact opposite. There are some wonderfully hearted people who are Mormons. We should show them the love of Christ, but we should not agree that we worship the same person. We should not agree that we follow the same kind of teaching, because we don't. Joseph Smith was a man who apparently his wife did not satisfy him in his eyes alone, and he slept with many other women, married many other women in what he called these kinds of spiritual marriages. And he actually, in his revelation, it was an instruction that he could do this. Hey, wife, God told me that I get to have all these other partners. Does that sound like something that we see from the God of the Bible? 
But the thing that, that, that is perhaps the most amusing to me, in, in its own way tragic, is that apparently he had a discussion with his wife about whether she would be allowed the same privilege, if you will, of having other kinds of spiritual marriage. Now, that was anathema to Joseph Smith. He, he didn't want any of that. Do you know that actually, literally, in one of his supposed revelations, you can find this in one of the books of, of, of Mormon doctrine, he claimed a revelation from God that God identified his wife by name. He, God spoke to his wife by name and said, you may not have any other partners. You have to cleave solely to Joseph Smith. Funny how that works, huh? Now, now, what would you say if I came to you and said, I have a revelation from God that I am allowed to do all these things that I want to do, but my wife can't do any of them. She has to say, she has to say completely faithful to me. How many of you would say, yeah, that sounds like a revelation from God? No, I think our reaction would be, no, that sounds like something that some guy made up so that he can do what he wants to do, Right? Now, again, I simply say this to say, those who arise and say, I am Christ, or I am the one, I am the one who is ushering in history, beware. Because in many cases, just like Joseph Smith or others, they are only using it as a kind of veil to do what they want to do. To get fantastically rich, or to, to satisfy their fleshly lusts, whatever it is. But what Jesus is saying is, beware, because many will be deceived, and many have been, at a great, great cost. Notice not only is he concerned about this deception of those who are going to arise and say, I am Christ and shall deceive many. Notice what he says in verse 7. And when ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, be ye not troubled. Don't be troubled. Don't be anxious. Don't be fearful. For such things must needs or must necessarily be. But the end shall not be yet. So what's his priority? He says, make sure that you're not deceived, but also make sure you're not disturbed. Make sure you're not ruled by anxiety and fear and worry. That was his message to his disciples. And you say, well, why might it be that wars and rumors of wars might lead you to be disturbed? Well, look at verse 8. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be earthquakes in diverse places, and there shall be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. Now, we only need to look around our world history today. Uncertainty in political intrigues. Wars and rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, natural disasters. What effect do they tend to have on people? They, intent, they, they tend to make people fearful. They tend to make people anxious. They tend to make people worried. But notice what Jesus is saying. Don't be deceived and don't be disturbed. Don't be disturbed as if these events that, that are coming are going to be ones that... You think it's out of control. God's not on the throne. Look at all these wars. Look at all these earthquakes. Surely we may be at the end times. Surely we are the ones that are under great suffering and distress. Surely we are in trouble. God, Jesus says, no, don't be troubled. 
such things must necessarily be. But the end is not yet. By the way, this not only counsels against being deceived by those coming to say, I am Christ. It also counsels against being disturbed by the ones waving around rash predictions about exactly when Jesus is coming. Hey, do you see everything that's going on? Surely Jesus must be coming this year. There was a book written by a NASA scientist, a former NASA scientist and perhaps amateur Bible scholar. 88 reasons why Jesus will come in 1988. How do you think that went for him? It didn't go great. Do you know that didn't stop him from writing another book about why Jesus must certainly come in 1989? And then another book about why Jesus would come in 1993? I would have I phoned it in after the first one, folks. I would have let me go retreat to my cave in shame. In, in, I, I, I'm not just making a joke. Literally millions of copies of his 1988 book were sent around to ministry. Some of you may have even engaged with them or, or, or remembered them. It didn't stop them. Don't be disturbed by the people who come and say, you see all these things that are going on around in the world? It's coming next week or next year, even a, a decade ago. Do you remember the whole hubbub about the Mayan calendar, the ancient Mayan calendar ending? And there being no date after like December 2012 and people were saying... Secular people, well, now's the end of the world? I mean, it's nonsense, but this is exactly the kind of thing. Jesus is saying, don't be disturbed. Don't be anxious by what you see going on around you. And don't be deceived. Now, again, let me just pause here. As we go through this chapter together, we're going to come back to these two same kind of things. Don't be deceived. And don't be disturbed. We're going to see why. Secondly, I want us to look not just at a priority, but what I'm going to call a problem. A problem for us to work through. Remember what the disciples asked. When shall these things be? And when will be the sign of your coming? When will, be, when will all these things be fulfilled? And notice Jesus says first, Take heed, lest any man deceive you. Don't be deceived. Don't be disturbed. But now we should just wrestle with just a moment with the problem or the question of when was he talking about? When was he talking about these wars and rumors of wars? When was he talking about nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom? When was he talking about there being earthquakes in diverse places, about being famines, about being troubles? When? And again, you can look at at scholars that would say, well, Jesus is mostly speaking of something that has already occurred, or perhaps is occurring now. And you would look at other scholars and say, no, he's, he's talking about a specific time in the future. We're not there yet. We're not here in this, in this specific time. And this is where I want to suggest that this picture that we just looked at is going to be very helpful to us. The beginning of labor pains. Now, we're going, that picture of labor pains, of travail, sometimes as it's translated, is actually all over the scripture. You see it in the Old Testament used repeatedly of the kind of judgment of God that would fall and that would have people in this kind of, almost like they were in labor, the kind of agony and the kind of the, the emotional distress they would be in as a result of these labor pains. 
But you also see them in a couple places in the New Testament, I think, that are going to be very helpful. So I want us to ask to turn there and start, first of all, in Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8. This picture of labor pains is going to, I hope, be helpful to us. Notice in verse 18 of Romans chapter 8, and if you're not able to turn there, I'll just read it for our benefit here. In verse 18, Paul tells the the saints at Rome, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature, of the created beings, waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. Now, that may not immediately ring with you. Like, what, what does he mean by that? What he means by this is this. The expectation of all of us who have been created is waiting for the sons of God to be manifested, to be revealed. Who are God's children? That's what humanity is driving toward. We have said it at this church for many years. The story of history is the story of God drawing out of the world a special people for himself. What is going on in the world today? God is drawing out of the world a special people for himself. That's the story of redemption. That's the story of Christ's death on the cross, of his resurrection, of his ascension to the right hand of God, to the Holy Spirit who, who, who convicts and convinces men of their sin and righteousness and judgment, of, of the Holy Spirit who draws us into the likeness of Christ, who enables us to live as God wants us to live. God is gathering out of the world a special people for himself. And this, Paul says, is what all the creation is eagerly awaiting. The manifestation, the the revelation of God's redemptive work being completed, being finished. And now notice what he says. For the creature, the created being, was made subject to vanity, to emptiness, to nothingness like our human bodies, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Friends, your body is subject to corruption. Your body one day will decay in the ground like every other body. And here's what he's saying. There is a bondage of corruption that all of us are living in right now. We are corrupting. Our bodies are decaying even as we speak. And they will decay. The world around us is decaying. But notice what he said. We will be delivered from that bondage into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And now he's going to point out something about our natural world. Will you see here in verse 22? For we know that the whole creation... Groan, groaneth and travaileth, that's labor, in pain together until now. I want you to think about that for just one moment. Paul is saying that the world around us, everything created, us, the world around us, is groaning like they're in labor. They are travailing in pain until now. 
Now, what, what is he saying? Well, take that back into what Jesus is saying in Mark chapter 13. What did he say his followers would experience? They would experience earthquakes. They would experience famines. They would experience natural disasters. They would experience wars and rumors of wars. They would experience all kinds of troubles. And what does Paul say? Paul, say, Paul says we are experiencing these general labor pains right now. We're experiencing them. We're experiencing wars and rumors of wars. We're experiencing natural disasters. And what is it doing? It's a picture that we are not in a final state right now. We're moving toward the final state. Just like a woman who is in labor, those pains are not the final end. They are not the conclusion. The conclusion is the baby being born. The joy of that new life entering the world. That is the end. This is just temporary. But it's painful and it's agonizing and it's difficult. Paul's saying the same thing. What we see around us, the difficulties, the troubles in this age, what we see over in Ukraine today, what we see in natural disasters all over the world, it's the birth process. It's labor pains. It is groaning and travailing in pain until now. So let me be clear. For those who say that Jesus' words here are solely in the future, they're solely at some time in the future, they have no relevance to our day today, I say, well, Paul talked about a labor pain. That looks a lot like the labor pain that we're going through, even as a society, as a world today. And so I do believe that Jesus is speaking words that had relevance to his disciples in the first century and that have relevance to us today, that we ourselves are experiencing these kinds of general labor pains of a, of a world that is not where it ultimately will be, that is moving toward the final stages of God's redemptive process. But now let's just talk about whether this, these words have any future application. Do they have, do they have any future application to God's people? Are there, is there a way in which we can say that it does relate to something in the future? And now I'll ask you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And I'm doing this so we can be students of the Bible. So we can compare Scripture against other Scripture. Now if you're wondering where Thessalonians is, if you've Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, then 1 Thessalonians. If you get to 1 and 2 Timothy or to Hebrews, you're too far. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now in verse number 1, listen to what Paul says here. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 1 says, But of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. He says, For yourselves, you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Now, let me just pause to say one thing. The day of the Lord is an Old Testament idea. 
It refers to the season of God's judgment falling upon all mankind. It is referring to truly the end times, the last days before God comes in Jesus to make all things right and bring about his final judgment. So he's clearly speaking of the end days, the end times, the the end of the conclusion. Now notice what he says. The day, this day of the Lord, these final days are coming as a thief in the night. Now, do you know when a thief is coming in the night to your house? If you did, that would help a lot, wouldn't it? The entire point is, you don't know. That's what Jesus is saying. It's it's uncertain. The day of the Lord is coming uncertain, in an uncertain time. Now, look at the next picture he uses in verse 3. For when they shall say, peace and safety... Then sudden destruction comes upon them as travail upon a woman with child. Huh. Paul says there's going to be a time in the future when people say, peace and safety. Peace in our time. We're approaching the kind of utopia that we've been dreaming about. And then he says, it's going to be like a thief in the night. Not only that, he says it's going to be like travail, like labor pains for a woman having birth. Now, some of you know that. Some of you women who had had babies, you know your labor pains might have come on very quickly, very suddenly. You weren't expecting it, and suddenly, bam, it's there. we got to get to the hospital. Paul says there's going to be something about the day of the Lord, that coming of God's judgment upon the earth, that's going to be that sudden. Now, I think this is a helpful additive to what I said before. Is there a way in which these verses that we've just read about the birth pains, about the labor pains, do they apply to us today? Yes, they do. Because we are in a world that is experiencing birth pains, that is experiencing labor. And yet Paul says there's going to come a day in the future, at the very end of the times, when there is a gap in those birth pains that allows some people to say, peace and safety, things are going great. Well, this is, this is, we're at the, the peak of human existence. And God says, watch out. The labor pains are going to hit fast and they're going to hit hard. And it's going to be like a thief in the night. You're not going to be ready for it. So ask me that question. Is Jesus in Mark chapter 13? Speaking about something only, is he talking about something in the past and in the present? Or is he talking about something in the future? Do you know my answer is? Yes. Is he talking about something that we should keep in mind and look for today and is relevant to our day? Yes. Is he talking about something that is going to be a specific act in the future in which the labor pains are going to get a lot faster and a lot closer together and a lot more intense? Yes. I just see that in my Bible. And so frankly... I don't need to pick and stand in one camp and say, it's only past and present. And I don't need to stand in a camp that says, it's only in the future. I see both of these things as true as being supported by Scripture. That is to say, we are in a general 
time of labor pains. From the first century until now, all of the world is in that labor pains, moving toward the ultimate manifestation of the children of God until that great liberty is accomplished when God's redemptive purposes are done. That's true. It's also true that we see in Scripture there appears to be pointing forward to a day in the future when despite people being surrounded by peace and safety, God is going to break into his world. And those labor pains are going to, going to, to, to ramp up in intensity and in frequency. And we can read more about that in the book of Revelation. So notice not only the priority that Jesus says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. But the problem that we resolve is that we are in these days of labor pains today, but in also with what seems to me to be a future application of them. Thirdly, let's look at the practical application. How are we going to apply this picture of labor pains to ourselves? The first thing that I would say if we believe that these words are relevant to us today, and I do believe that they are, these are not just looking forward into the future, the first thing that we should say is we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised by the difficulty that we're experiencing today. We shouldn't be thrown off our mark when we hear of difficulty, political difficulty, geopolitical difficulty, we shouldn't be f- afraid when we hear of calamity and natural distress, a natural disaster. We shouldn't be afraid when in the future some of those natural disasters might hit us. Jesus said, don't be troubled. These things must needs be. It must be like this. Why? Because we're in a world that's pointing forward to something in the future. We're waiting for something. This is something that C.S. Lewis brought out wonderfully. And I'm just paraphrasing him here. But he said, if I find in myself a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, if I find in myself a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most reasonable explanation is that I was made for another world. You understand what he's saying? If I find in myself, if there's something desiring, craving something that can never be fulfilled here, and friends, people are trying to do that all over our world today. There are people out on these streets that are injecting themselves with drugs They are smoking drugs. They are doing things. They are drinking themselves drunk. They are sleeping around with different people here and there. And what are they pursuing? They are pursuing something to fill a desire that they have no other answer for. They are pursuing it. Out on Lake Minnetonka, there are people who are pursuing that same desire through massive profit and wealth through pursuing status symbols of wealth, building large houses to themselves, buying fancy cars. They are pursuing that same kind of desire, just in a different way. Others are pursuing it through fame. Others are pursuing it through vanity and beauty and everything that the world has to offer. They are pursuing that desire. And C.S. Lewis put his finger on it. Nothing in this world will satisfy it. Nothing will. And so what does Lewis conclude? I conclude that I was made for a different world. 
where that desire will perfectly be satisfied. And this is at the heart of what Jesus is saying here. All of our world today is in labor pains. It's, it, it, it's experiencing a kind of tremor, a kind of trembling that is pointing ahead to the ultimate conclusion of God's redemptive purpose in Jesus Christ. We shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be shaken. We shouldn't be troubled by the difficulty that we're experiencing. Here's the second thing. If we shouldn't be surprised, we should be looking forward to what the ultimate end is. To what the ultimate end is. This is wonderful. What is the purpose of labor pains? It's not just for, you, for, the, for the lady to be miserable. That's not it. In fact, have any of you seen um, a, a, a video of, of guys being placed, they have a device that they place on guys that tries to simulate labor pains for them? I'll, I'll give you a guess. How do you think the guys do under that kind of difficulty and distress? We obviously grit our teeth, and we don't utter a word, and we are very strong and powerful in the midst of it. Guys, am I right about that? No, they fall to the floor and begin quivering like a baby. I'll tell you, I mean, it's just like, Noah, get this off me, get this off me. Guys, our wives are pretty amazing, pretty amazing. But you know, there, there's actually an answer to that, isn't there? If for a guy, when a device is on him creating that pain, it's no pur- there's no purpose to it. It has no good end. That pain's not leading anywhere. It's just misery. It's just difficulty. It's just distress and discomfort for no reason. What about for mom? For mom, it's bringing her somewhere. For mom, that pain is producing something joyous. And so she endures it. And so she is able to push through it because ultimately the good at the end of it is what is the greatest joy of all. And you know, friends, in my years as a pastor and doing personal counseling with people and engaging with people, one of the hardest things for anyone to deal with, any human being to to deal with, is pain that doesn't have a purpose. Our humanity can push themselves through the greatest imaginable forms of pain when there's a purpose. Look at someone running a marathon. 26 miles of pain. And why do they do it? Because there's a finish line at the end. And they'll push themselves through unimaginable suffering to get there. And you know, friends, whether you're a Christian dealing with your day-to-day suffering or whatever it is, if we live in a world in which our pain doesn't have a purpose, we're going to look up to God and say, what's going on, God? I thought, I thought life wasn't supposed to be like this. Do you know what helps us when we realize that we are all, are all experiencing a kind of labor pain right now? We see there's a purpose. There's a redemptive purpose. Jesus is coming back. He is going to transform us perfectly into the glorious liberty of the children of God. All of redemptive history is going to culminate in those events. And the labor pains that we experience now are not to be recoiled from, not to make us afraid or troubled. They're make us to look ahead and say, the birth is coming. 
Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come, come and bring an end to all of this labor. Complete your redemptive purposes. Friends, wherever you are today, in your suffering, in your pain, would you look to the word of God and see the purpose behind it so that you can endure? There's one more thing. The practical application. Don't be surprised. There's a purpose. There's an end ahead to these labor pains. And finally this. What are you going to do about it? Do you know what Jesus said? Jesus said these words. Take heed. Take heed. Take heed to yourselves. Take heed lest any man deceive you. What do we need to do? We need to wake up. And we need to start looking around. Let me just make one comment here before we close. Will you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10? Hebrews chapter 10, and I just want to look at this one passage before we close. In the book of Hebrews, the Holy Spirit is speaking through the author to people who were suffering, to people who were in great difficulty and distress. They were experiencing their own unique kind of labor pains. They themselves were under great agony and distress. I want you to notice verse 23. The author of Hebrews says to them, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Let us consider one another. Let's look at each other. And provoke each other to love and to good works, to doing good. And look at verse 25. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is. What's the assembling of ourselves together? When do we assemble together? We assemble together here, at church. We assemble together, perhaps sometimes in small groups. We assemble sometimes on Wednesday evenings for prayer. We assemble on Sunday evenings. He says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. Some do that. But exhorting one another, and listen to this, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. What day? The day of God's final culmination. The day of the Lord. The day when God's redemptive purposes are going to be accomplished. Here's what he's saying. He's saying when you see that day approaching, when you see those labor pains continuing on, he says, do this. Make sure that you're not forsaking gathering together with God's people. You know, friends, this last week, I had the opportunity with my kids to do a little s'more roast. We sat around a bonfire at a place where we were staying this week on a little family vacation. We had those little s'mores, and we held them right over those hot coals, those hot coals that turned those marshmallows. Well, for some of us, a light brown. For some of others, a very dark black. You know. You know the idea. What do you think would have happened if I would have taken one of those coals with tongs and took them out and put them right on the little ledge or the rock ground that was away. What would have happened to that coal? Would it have stayed hot? It would have quickly assumed the temperature that was the ambient temperature. But do you know what would have happened? If I'd have picked that back up and I would have put that back with the other hot coals, do you know what would have heated right back up again? 
Do you know that's what we're talking about here? As you see the day approaching, you're like a coal that needs to stay hot. You need to watch out for yourself, and you need to watch out for the other people in your fellowship together at Straight Gate Church. And do you know how one of the reasons you're going to get cold? It's because you're like that coal. You isolate yourself. You put yourself outside of the gathering together in person of God's people. Let me just encourage you today. We're experiencing some labor pains now. Someday in the future, there's going to be an even increasing amount and frequency of labor pains. And let me say this, as you see that day approaching, take heed. And when you take heed, make sure that you're gathering together with God's people, staying hot like that flame, like that coal, and make sure that you're not deceived, just like Jesus has warned us about.